listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we get to know the best CEOs, investors, and entrepreneurs in the mining industry. I'm your host, Jamie Keach. On today's Resource Insider Podcast, I sit down with Dan Earl, one of the smartest people in the mining industry. Here's a guy that has spent over a decade as the head analyst for TD Bank. He's now running Solaris Resources. In this conversation, Dan really gives a masterclass on how professional analysts look at the sector, where money is made, what makes up a tier one asset, and really how he sees this copper bull market playing out over the next couple of years. If you are serious about resource investing, if you are serious about mining, this is a must listen. I know I'm going to listen to it at least two more times. So without further ado, let me please introduce Daniel Earl, CEO of Solaris Resources. So this podcast has been certainly many months in the making, uh, but in, in other ways, I would say many, many years in the making. You know, we've known each other for a while now. Um, we've been talking about doing this podcast since you came on at Solaris. And I think now is a very, um, I would say, opportune time to be having this conversation. You've got a lot going on. There's a lot going on in the markets, in the copper space in particular. So welcome to the show. Uh, I'm excited to have you here and uh, let's get into it. Let's do it. Okay. I've got, you know, I've been like looking at my list of questions today. I'm not entirely sure where to start, but I think for people listening at home, let's give them the sort of elevator pitch of who is Dan Earl? What is Solaris? What are you guys doing? Yeah, uh, sure. You know, so, um, so who's Dan Earl? Well, I'm the, I'm the, I guess currently I'm the president and CEO of uh, Solaris Resources. Um, you know, prior, prior to Solaris, I was an equity research analyst at one of the uh, major banks covering um, precious and base metals with a particular focus on exploration through development stage companies. And some of them went on to become, you know, emerging producers and then, you know, growing diversified producers. Uh, but I did that for, for 12 years. And then, um, in, in the, in, in my life prior to that, I was working in industry. Now I was, I was educated as a, a mining engineer, like you were, Jamie, and I did the, um, the exploration specialization, which is sort of like a hybrid of, uh, economic geology with, with more traditional mining engineering. And, um, and so that was my educational background, but the work that I did in industry was all, um, because of where we were in the cycle at the time. I basically graduated at the beginning of the early 2000s cycle. Um, I ended up doing um, generative um, uh, exploration work in industry prior to coming to, you know, capital markets and then now making the transition more recently to corporate. Um, so that's, uh, so that's who I am. Uh, Solaris Resources is a copper growth and discovery story. And basically what you have in the company is a very special portfolio of assets uh, that was taken on by the Augusta group with the, with the goal of surfacing the value there and then selling on these assets as we get deeper into the copper cycle. You know, obviously now we're just at the beginning. Um, and and the, Augusta, the Augusta group, you're familiar with, Jamie, I'm, I'm sure your listeners um, are, are familiar as well 
have, has a totally unrivaled track record of value creation, specifically in the niche of, of exploration and development in the mining sector. And so they've, you know, they, they, they've realized exit proceeds of over four and a half billion dollars through a series of transactions and generated a further four billion dollars of investment gains for their followers over the past decade. Um, and so, uh, and, and so Solaris is uh, a major focus of the Augusta Group uh, currently, alongside um, the other companies in, in the portfolio. And basically what we're doing is applying the same strategy that has made the Augusta Group successful in its other endeavors. And, and so that's obviously starting with a world-class asset, which we have in our flagship Warinza project within this portfolio. There's six assets in the portfolio, but the, the Warinza project is an obvious starting point because it's a world-class asset. And that, and the hard part there, of course, was, was the discovery and that was made by, by David Wolf and, um, and then came to us through this, uh, through this portfolio and the spin-out transaction with Equinox. Um, so starting with a world-class discovery, uh, a high-grade open-bit discovery, and then basically um, the, uh, the, 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 the key, the key uh, for us was to restore its social license so that we could actually get active on the project again. And, um, and, and that's something that we accomplished in, in 2019 which basically kicked off the, uh, the, the, the modern history of this project and the exploration, the further exploration of this project. So that's kind of the, the first thing that's critical in, in one of these um, uh, Augusta Group companies. And then the second thing, of course, is, is funding your program. In, the, in this case, we're fully funded all the way through to what we feel will be the point of sale for this project. Um, so we've got over 90 million in cash and then a further uh, 90 million of, of, of in the money warrant proceeds, uh, which are largely in the hands of, of management and our strategic supporters, uh, Equinox, um, Lundin, uh, BD, and, and so on. So we're fully funded through to where we think we can um, sell this project on. And then, and then really the, just the easy part is, is actually doing the, the drilling. So drill, taking that discovery, the high-grade discovery that David Bull made, in the early 2000s, and then and then drilling it out to its potential, and the the kind of uh, threshold that you need to get to to establish a world class uh, copper project for for an open pit anyway um, is is approximately a billion tons. So if you can get to a billion tons of of high grade resources in an open pit shell, then that's 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 what establishes uh, a world class copper project. So that's 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 clearly what we need to do with our with our Warrensa project and the drilling that we're doing at Warrensa Central, and then it's in addition to the drilling a, a job of, of of technical de-risking. So uh, we recently hired uh, Chad Woolahan from Ivanhoe Mines. He's our our VP projects now, and uh, Chad at Ivanhoe Mines took their flagship Kamoa Kukula project in the DRC uh, through PEA uh, feasibility and into detailed engineering to set it up to now transition well into pre-production and then, and then production, which it's doing. And so we brought in Chad to do that same job for us at Lorenzo. And he's already gotten started on the various technical threads of uh, work that need to be brought together to 
complete one of these engineering and economic studies, which we'll, which we'll get to early early next year. Okay. Um, so that's a lot so of that, a lot of stuff for us to dig into over the next uh, half hour or so. Um, yeah. And you know, I think you know this is an interesting conversation for me because our we've our lives have kind of spun around a few of the same things, if not always intersecting. You know, we you mentioned earlier we both went to U of T, the same program. You were a few years ahead of me, um, and then I worked at Equinox at the time. Uh, when we acquired uh, Warinsa and, and at the time it was called Lowell Copper and then as well when we spun it out into Solaris and then it was taken up by the Augustus Group and yourself and uh, Richard Wark. But, you know, when I, I go back to the, the beginning, I think, you know, the first time I met you uh, was when you came in to speak at a class that I was taking when I was in second year university uh, on economic geology and kind of more of the market aspect of geology. And I think you were, you'd been graduated a year or two before and you were working with a gentleman that was our professor, a guy named Glenn Brown. Um, could you maybe give an idea of who Glenn Brown is and then sort of the influence he had in your early career? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Glenn is one of the best people that I know in terms of his quality, the quality of the character and, and his contribution uh, to my life and really just to the, you know, the Toronto mining community um, at large. Uh, but, but he's, yeah, he, he was an adjunct professor uh, at the, at the U of T. He was working at the time uh, when I first met him as a, uh, as a, as an equity research analyst at Haywood Securities. And mm -hmm. so he was really uh, just moonlighting as an adjunct professor at the U of T and basically trying to introduce the, the next generation of mining professionals to the, uh, the capital markets aspects of, of, the, uh, of the mining industry. And like with a particular focus, obviously on exploration, which is more of the focus of kind of the capital markets in, uh, in, in, in Canada with respect to the mining industry and also the gold industry, of course. Um, and so, yeah, so, so that's who he is. And, and basically he just sets out to, uh, to, to do good things. I mean, this is a person who wants to make the world better. And so that, that, that's, you know, his, his work at the U of T and his contribution to, um, you know, um, educating, um, students beyond the, uh, kind of, uh, um, the, the agenda of, of their course programs is, is his way in which he does that. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones and that I've been able to, uh, you know, to benefit from that and like realize benefits from that. And, you know, in that, for example, I, I got a, um, um, my start in the industry basically is working as his assistant or associate or junior associate or whatever on a, on a summer term. And then, um, you know, and then build, building my, my first set of relationships in the industry through that work, which I was then able, after I graduated uh, from the U of T with a mineral engineering degree, to, you know, to make use of, to find kind of further employment and find my way in the door of the industry. And so it's kind of all built from there. I honestly uh, wouldn't, I mean, it's, it's cliche, but it's true. You know, I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for him. So yeah. he's... Yeah, he he's just an he's just an unbelievable person, and his motives are are pure. 
you know so he is doing this because it's a it's 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 a good thing and um you know there aren't enough people in the world like that so it's amazing it's yeah amazing you know person. i was thinking the other day of the number of careers in this sector that he's essentially incubated at his own cost and i've i've heard him yeah. refer to himself as essentially a halfway house for nerds i think yeah where he like <laughs> takes them right. at a university where they're basically useless teaches them what they yeah. need to know you know and launches them into the world um you know, my brother-in-law, who's a fund manager, used to work for him. He helped yeah. me get my first job at a university, which is an, or in university, which is an exploration. And there's probably a dozen other people I could think of off the top of my head. And I just think that's it's interesting because I've known him and maybe a very, very small number of other people like him. But so many people in this sector can trace their career back to a person like that, that took an interest in them at an earlier, relatively early age and kind of backstopped them with the credibility that they need to go out and do something interesting or do something special. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and even more than just, you know, kind of arming them with the, with the education on uh, the industry and opportunities within the industry. Um, and, and so be, beyond that, and, and, and credibility, as you said, and, and obviously, you know, connections through his network and so on. But, he, but even beyond that, I mean, this is a person who's put up money for, uh, for his students to pursue ventures in the mining space at, at, a, at a point, obviously, at the beginning of their careers where it, it like you're just lighting the money on fire, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but because it, because it, um, you know, because he believes in them and he believes in, in the value. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I've never actually talked to him about it, but why, you know, why would you invest in students? But I'm sure it's because it, he feels that it's a good thing. Um, more, you know, it's a good, it's a good thing for the students and just a good thing overall to invest in young people and give them an opportunity to go uh, do, deliver and do things in the world. So, yeah, it's um, it, it it's certainly not financially driven. Um, that that's that's for sure. Whatever his motives are. Yeah, and you know the reason I I kind of bring this up is because you know when I met you in this class, you came in to talk about what it was like to run, run a junior mining company, and you were running junior explorers when you were what 22, 23, something like that, very young. Yeah, well, I, I so basically when I graduated, that was kickoff of the junior mining cycle in 2003. Mm -hmm. And um, at, that, at that time, there was an opportunity, like which seemed like a generational opportunity at the time, uh, with the opening up of China's mineral sector to foreign investment. And, um, and so this was a sector, you know, you looked at it at the time and you're like, okay, clearly, you know, under underinvested. Um, you know, uh, a situation where we can apply, you know, new, new thinking and technologies towards exploration and, um, you know, consolidation opportunities and all the rest of it. Like, it just seemed like a right um, kind of market for opportunity. And so I uh, basically started a company um, to go and um, try and uh, um, um, basically uh, do deals to sign up some of these assets in this emerging new play in China, and then and then bring that to the uh, um, the public markets here in Canada. So that was yeah, that was my 
that was my first, that was my first venture. Ultimately it wasn't successful. Um, and, uh, and then I ended up transitioning from, from that venture into uh, a, uh, a play in West Africa called Extra Gold, which, which was more successful. It's still, I mean, it's still listed today. It's um, um, like a, you know, 50 million market cap uh, junior explorer today. So. Okay. And then how did you go from being on the company, the corporate side, um, you know, starting, building, running these companies to launching yourself into a career as a, a research analyst at a major bank? Um, so, so basically, yeah, you know, I, I'd, uh, um, I'd spent, um, a, uh, with, with extra gold, I'd spent, um, you know, like something like a year, more than a year, actually, um, basically putting together, taking, taking some concessions. This is, this, this company was focused in, in Ghana and specifically, um, the Eastern part of Ghana, which is a less established, less explored, uh, greenstone belt in Ghana called the Kibi greenstone belt. Um, and, um, and, and so it was basically at, at, uh, uh, um, a very like a grassroots stage of exploration. It was kind of looking at like, um, the mineral concessions and an exploration camp and not much else. And so, the job there was putting in place a baseline of exploration data. So going out and doing mapping work and then stream sediment sampling work to try and identify some areas to focus on with more detailed work. And then, you know, and then once we've done that, coming in layering in soil sampling and then generating, you know, actual fuel targets. So it was really, um, so that, so that was a lot of work and it was like hard, you know, uh, Kind of miles in the in 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 the field in a remote area, and um, uh, ultimately it was just a you know a personal choice to come uh, to come back to you know Toronto, my home, and um, and then uh, and take things in a different direction. And 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 basically the opportunity within you know to transition back to the the capital markets came came about through the relationships that I built up. Um, in the uh, the work that I'd done with um, with, with Glenn at Haywood Securities, so there was actually an investment banker at Haywood Securities who I'd stayed in touch with, and he'd gone to a different firm, and he was looking for a for a uh, for a research analyst um, at his new firm, and so that's that was the you know that was the opportunity that I took back up to basically make my start in capital markets. That was probably two thousand five. And, and for people who've never heard the term sort of research analyst and, and particularly a sell side research analyst, can you give an overview of what that job actually entails? Yeah. So, uh, so equity research analysts are, uh, you know, um, publishing on, um, you know, this is, you know, Canadian um, publicly listed equities. And then, so if you're a mining analyst, you're covering mining equities. Um, and, uh, and for me, I was covering um, specifically, you know, earlier stage companies, so exploration and development stage, and then later on in my career, you know, emerging producers and, and full-fledged diversified producers. Um, and so the, the job of an equity research analyst is basically to, to, to publish on those companies. So, um, uh, you know, so to, so to cover, um, um, put a baseline in place in the form of initiating report. 
um, describing the company and um, its opportunities and risk profile and so on, providing you know baseline kind of estimates for uh, its value, you know, its valuation and um, uh, earnings, earnings estimates, production estimates, et cetera, and then continuing coverage of them as they evolve with and report, um, you know, uh, uh, exploration results, resource estimates, engineering economic studies, you know, eventually quarterly reports become more important to the producers and so on, and providing your, uh, you know, reaction and interpretation of those results to, um, you know, largely uh, the, the, the focus of Canadian investment banks is on the institutional market. So these would be portfolio managers at, uh, you know, uh, mutual funds and uh, hedge funds and, 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 and so on, but also, um, but also the, uh, the retail audience. So these would be investment advisors and individual investors are getting your research as well. And what they're seeing generally is a recommendation on a specific security. Uh, so buy, sell, hold, what have you, and target prices and then estimates for, you know, all those various metrics that are important. So I know I've gotten this question from people a lot of times, and I'd love to hear it because I've never actually talked to uh, someone who's had that role before. But how do sell-side research analysts, I guess, manage the conflicts, right? Because when you're working for a bank, often the bank is working with a company. Uh, on the banking side, the bankers, they're helping to raise money or they're helping with M&A or they're helping any other things. And then you have the research analysts that are there to just provide an objective report about what this company is worth, whether it's worth owning. Obviously, there must be, if not direct, indirect pressure to to the, 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 the companies your bank is working with. You know, obviously, the bankers who you know want favorable reports on that. How do you manage your independence as a, as a sell-side analyst to still be able to be objective, to be able to provide, um, I guess, as a, a most accurate evaluation that you can? Yeah, so obviously it's, it's a, a challenge to kind of um, balance the interests of the firm off against, you know, the interests of clients. But the way, to, the way that I did it successfully was to just to, to get in front of the process and identify the companies where you know there'd be a natural alignment and so to initiate coverage on companies where you saw in, in my case what i was looking i had a very specific process what i was looking for was um opportunities where i saw on on day one um a uh, an economic scenario playing out so whether or not there was a resource estimate or an economic study or whatever i, I could i saw the makings of an economic scenario there so that I, I, I had basically downside protection there. But then what I wanted to see is world-class growth potential around that. So whatever that nucleus was, I wanted to see it be able to grow into something that, you know, would be world-class. So, you know, at, at the beginning of my career, that, like in, 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 you know, two cycles ago, <laughs> that, that, that would have been, you know, for a gold deposit, something like a 10 million ounce deposit, or certainly at least a 5 million ounce deposit. And obviously, as those opportunities become more scarce, there's been dilution to what we call world-class, right? The same is true in, in the copper space. Um, so, you know, it used to be that you want a billion ton, um, you know, plus 0.5% copper open pit with infrastructure or something. And like now at, at this point, those, those kinds of projects just simply don't exist. We, we think we may have one with, um, with Marinsa. Um, 
but that only exists by virtue of the social history, which which held it in limbo. It prevented it from being developed in you know in the in the prior cycles. Um, um, so um, so so yeah. So I need to see that um, that that nucleus there, which protects my downside. Then I need to see the world class growth potential around that. And 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 where you can identify that. Not I was I was able to do this like so over my you know basically dozen years as a cell side research analyst. I averaged out at a big, basically one takeout per year. And so if you can identify the those opportunities like that, um, then you can be sure that uh, you know when you um, when you recommend when when you recommend that clients buy that stock that it's going to increase in value and that ultimately you know and of course. From the from the bank's perspective, there's business opportunities along the way with the growth of the company. There's um, you know capital needs, and uh, and then ultimately when you get to the exit point, there's you know an additional business opportunity in the form of advisory work around right. uh, a takeout. And, and so you... you've got this natural alignment there, and yeah. that's really the key. And then you and then you and then you short circuit the potential for a conflict. And what do you mean, uh, can you define what you mean by double down on, you know, one takeout opportunity per year? What, what, what does that mean? Or average oh, down? No, I no, I, 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 I'm, just, I'm just saying like this, 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 was, this was the approach that, 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 uh, that I tried to apply throughout my career. And the result was, you know, of all the companies that I launched coverage on, um, I averaged one per year, like across that 12 year period. Which I see. I see. Yeah, yeah. And so, obviously, like, like, like the the key was, and this is something I'm proud of myself on, was being able to identify those opportunities early, and more importantly, ahead of competitors, so that you could really get in and 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 dominate the uh, uh, the discussion around the name, the trade, and the securities, and then obviously, you know, the the business the business flows from there. So you said something interesting, you know, when you started your career, when you're looking for a, <clears throat> your career as an analyst, rather, when you're looking for, say, a world-class gold deposit, you're looking for five to 10 million ounces, sort of, or a billion plus tons in, in a copper deposit at 0.5%. You know, you mentioned those are, well, let me actually ask you this. Those are a lot rarer today than they were even 12 years ago, right? Um, now, Absolutely. like, what? Uh, and this is kind of, I'm asking you for a back of the envelope idea here, but like how much rarer do you think they are? Are we finding half as many? Are we finding 10%? Oh yeah. I, I mean, um, I, I've got, <laughs> I don't have them all off the top of my head, but I can show you, I could show you slides that basically if you just, uh, if you do things really simply and you just look at the number of discoveries with total inventories over 10 million ounces, and then you see this, you know, like a simple bar chart over time, and you'd see a big spike of discoveries in, uh, you know, in the in the uh, in the 80s and 90s, where you had you know, basically growth in uh, uh, the work in Nevada, in particular the Carlin trend, and then in through the 90s, yeah. you've got the discoveries in you know Peru with it opening up, Mexico was opening up just prior to the period um, with some big discoveries, and then. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then once those discoveries are made, they're, 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 they're gone, right? And so they're no longer available. And then as you get into the, into the 2000s, you know, with the price picking up, you've got another spurt of, of discoveries and, and, and projects now that wouldn't have been economic at lower, 
lower prices now becoming economic and so contributing to that number there. So this is things like, you know, uh, Detour Lake, for example, or Canadian Malartic. These, these, were, these are plus 10 million ounce inventories, but they wouldn't have been economic in the 90s cycle, for example. They were only made economic by the increase in the price. And now even those opportunities are becoming more scarce. So you're seeing, you know, the absolute number and the quality uh, declining, you know, significantly. So uh, in more recent years. Yeah, I kind of want to talk a bit about this because if if it took five million ounces for you to get excited about something in two thousand five, you know, someone sitting in your chair at a bank today, what do you think they're looking for? Is it a million ounces? Is it three million ounces? What what starts to move? Uh, the needle, uh, given where we are today in terms of both, say, size and grade? I, I think I think for gold now, world class is 3 million ounces. So it's gone from 10 to 5 to 3 over my career. And my career is not that long. Um, so now 3 million ounces. If you can define 3 million good quality, like robust, high grade, um, or, you know, with favorable geometry, metallurgy, all the rest of it, 3 million good quality ounces. Is, is now, I think, world-class. And, and what I'm hearing, too, is you see people for a heap-leachable project, say in a place like Nevada, having a half a gram per ton, a three million ounce deposit, that's something to get really excited about now, which you know would not have oh, been yeah, 10 yeah, years I ago. Mean, I mean, like, name one. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's what tells you. Like, like what, is, what is the, you know, who has a project, let's say, that is over a million ounces at um, one gram per ton? like a heat bleach project in Nevada. No one. It doesn't exist. So so what's a good quality project in Nevada? And well we we think we have one, for example, with uh, with Bullfrog. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, the, the Bullfrog project in, in Augusta Gold, you know, which was previously named Bullfrog. We took the company over and had sort of a history of uh, an inability to raise capital to fund a serious exploration program. And there was another component, a real constraint for them was that they were missing uh, kind of at least half of the deposit, which was on barracks lands, and they couldn't get a barrack uh, deal done um, by virtue of you know just the credibility of the company. And so we've come in and, and basically consolidated that land package, and now we're we've we've raised a significant amount of money. So we just closed a financing uh, just just yesterday for 17 million dollars to add to the treasury. It was already well funded, um, and so now we'll be able to embark on a really serious drill program. And if you look at the inventory there, so that's sitting at, and, and this is estimated at 1,200 gold um, based on, you know, exploration work that was done um, when the gold price was, was you know, under 300 bucks an ounce, right? So, you'd, you, you'd, you know, if you just, if you only adjusted the gold price and did nothing, no additional drilling, you'd already be looking at a significant change. But then obviously now with the mindset of higher gold prices, like we think of, the long-term gold prices being $1,500 an ounce currently. You know, obviously you want to go and drill the extensions, these deposits and so on. But just looking at it as it is today, you've got over 600,000 ounces at, at circa 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8 grams per ton, you know, heap leachable in Nevada. I mean, that's, when we get back to that approach to um, looking at projects and opportunities, that's your nucleus that you want to look at, which, you know, you've got, you've got the makings of an economic project there, or what, or what should be an economic project. Um, and then you've got this obvious multiple times growth opportunity around them with, you know, um, normalizing the gold price 
to long-term estimates, doing the extensional drilling, doing the exploration drilling, and, and so on in a camp that's got a big, uh, where you've got a big land package, it's a prolific camp, and you just haven't seen that type of work be done in the past. So, you know, that's, um, that's something that's special in Nevada in, in this current cycle. Right. And that would have been highly mediocre a decade ago, but today it's well, very attractive. Yeah. So, so this is kind of where I'm, I'm leading along to this conversation here is that, all right, let me see if I can phrase this the best way possible. You know, Rick, Rick rules kind of been on the record saying, and I'm paraphrasing that, you know, we haven't had a proper exploration cycle in, in decades where people are incentivized to go out and discover new large deposits to replace the ones we've been mining out and using up over the last 20 years. And, you know, as your experience, you know, running companies as a research analyst, do you think, and I think there is a massive disconnect to what the price of metals need to be to incentivize that growth and that exploration to where they are today. I mean, we, you know, we've seen a lot of growth in, in, in gold over yeah. the last year, but even at 1700, even at $1,800 gold, are we going to be able to get there? And you know, that we can have a similar conversation about copper, which I would say is an even more challenging state. So it's, it's up. There's no question that that's true, but of course, you know, commodities trade on a spot basis. And so the price is determined. Like, I mean, for, for, for a metal like copper, let's say, you know, the price is determined generally at the 90th percentile of the cost curve. And, and so it's not, the market isn't pricing copper on a spot basis. Uh, on an incentive pricing, it needs to balance off supply and demand expectations out into the future. And, mm -hmm. and, and out into the future keeps growing, like because the, 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 the time frame to bring one of these projects actually into production keeps growing because of all these constraints that we're putting on the mining industry you know, actually delivering projects from a regulatory and uh, ESG perspective and, and so on. So, um, so yeah, like the, the answer is unquestionably, you know, we don't have the prices that we need to deliver the kind of supply that we need for the future, but that's how the market works. And so this is what sets up the cycles that we're going to have. Like we, like we can see very clearly just sticking with copper, that there's going to be a gulf open up between supply and demand. And so uh, Wood, McKenzie, and CRU keep revising. I mean, every every three months, they're revising uh, their estimates for that supply shortfall higher. So, you know, just in the span that I've been at Solaris, you know, I started at Solaris in late 2019, we've seen those estimates go from, and this is to the end of the decade, go from 6 million ton shortfall to 6.5 million ton to 7. And then just yesterday, I saw the latest numbers from Wood McKenzie, and they've got the shortfall at 8 million tons. And so this gap keeps widening out um, uh, because of the, you know, the, the increase in the demand expectations. It seems like every week we hear about another automaker that's going to be fully electric. The most recent one that we've seen was Volvo. It's going to be fully electric by 2030. And... Um, and, and so that, you know, and so the, so the electrification of transport, the electrification of, of industry, the decarbonization, uh, so all these, you know, green and renewable initiatives, these all being, you know, highly copper intensive. These, these are what drive, are driving those, those demand estimates, you know, higher and higher. And then on the supply side, you've got peak copper fast approaching. This is driven by the physical constraints, the limitations of these, 
you know, mega mines, the top 10 mega mines of the industry have been the backbone of supply for decades. You know, something like a quarter of the supply out of these top 10 mega mines. And in prior cycles, to meet the gap between supply and demand, these have all been expanded and expanded again. And they've basically been expanded to a greater degree this cycle um, to their capacity um, than, than in prior cycles. And so the future is about greenfield, and that's going to require much harder. Prices. Right. And so when you say peak copper, it means that these mines have basically, they've reached their maximal output. They're not able to just turn up the tap because demand is increased. Exactly. You know, and so there's a variety of constraints, but the easiest one to understand is just the physical dimensions of these, uh, you know, the geometry of these ore bodies. Um, you know, if you if you max out basically your your uh, uh, like your laybacks and your pit floor space within the ore body, then you've maxed out your mining rate, and that's the physical limit on what you can do. So it's not a, an economic calculation anymore. And that's just, you know, that's just one example. There are other factors at play, like in particular, the, the, in the main copper producing regions, which are Chile and Peru, you're, you're talking about roughly a third of the world's copper supply. Water has become a constraint on the ability of these, not just the ability of the mines to, you know, for new production to come on and for the ability of these mines to be expanded, but actually just in maintaining production itself mm. with, um, you know, um, curtailing uh, production during droughts and so on. So you, you talk about this looming supply gap. I mean, I know we're kind of, I don't like to ask people to predict what metal prices are going to be, but you know, what do you think the impact on copper is? We've, you know, the last couple of weeks, we've been up around 420 a pound. I think historic highs are what, 463 a pound, $4 and 63 cents. I mean, <clears throat> I hear people talking about, yeah, you know, we'll have $5 copper. I hear other people saying, you know, we're going to have $10 plus copper. Do you have a feel for the quantum of where you see it going as well, in terms of commodity yeah, prices? Well, well, that's amazing. I mean, I, I haven't heard, I haven't heard of the five and $10 estimates, but I, I need to be following those people. That sounds like a lot of fun, but, uh, but no, it's um, like, I, I thought, you know, so I, I, I started this cycle. So basically after the pandemic with um, the kind of fiscal response that um, um, that I was seeing and the way that China was leading the way out of the pandemic, it, it consumes roughly 50% of the world's copper. Um, I, I thought that we would be uh, through $3 by the end of last year. And then I was talking about um, $4 uh, for this year. And um, and so obviously, we you know, we... we we exceeded those numbers more, more quickly than I would have expected and to a greater degree than I would have expected with the way that things actually, you know, um, played out. And so, um, and, and so the longer term forecasts that, that I've been putting out there are, are four to $6 copper. And with the price performance that we've seen and the way that these supply demand forecasts have evolved, which is to paint the picture of an even wider um, supply demand gap and, um, and more work that I've done, like understanding, you know, where this supply is and what kind of assumptions are built into um, these supply forecasts. Um, I actually think that there's upside to those estimates that I put in. So we could see, you know, six plus dollar copper. And then when you come back to just the technicals, like look, you know, if you just simply look at charts, which is ultimately what, you know, I think a lot of people do and find more reliable than listening to 
you know, analysts forecasting based off supply and demand and what have you. Um, in the prior two cycles, we basically saw the copper price quadruple or nearly quadruple over a period of, uh, you know, kind of a few years. And so in the mid 2000 cycle, that's what you saw. And then again, in the, in the, in the post financial crisis cycle. Yeah. And if you think about where we started this cycle, it was at about $2 a pound. So what's a quadruple from there? Well, that's a, you know, that's an $8 copper price. We're in about in approximately one year, we've doubled the price and that, and if you overlay it on those prior, um, you know, uh, um, price charts, it, it actually looks like we're basically on track to do that. So, all right. And, that, and that's, and that's kind of, you know, that's a lot to take in. Like if, if you're familiar with, um, you know, if you're a mining investment, those, those are kind of like, like talking about $6 copper and $8 copper, it just seems crazy. It's like those prices are unimaginable. And yet, and the, and yet, you know, when, when you actually look at it, those, those kinds of numbers start to be, um, you know, like, like, like the, the, that's what everything is pointing towards. Right. And so, but I mean, um, I guess it's no guess different it's, than when you started your career and we're, you know, $300 gold and oh, then totally. watching it yeah. run up to $1,200 and you know, like that. Totally, totally. And, and, you know, there's, there's not, there's not a lot in place to really stop it. Like, like with, with some of these other metals, um, you know, you, you start getting into, um, you know, demand destruction through substitution and so on. Like it's always the cap on whether you have yeah. platinum or palladium, um, you know, uh, surging higher, you know, you get substitution between the two of them. And we, and, we, and we saw that with nickel, like you remember, like over your career, you remember when nickel went absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the prices went, uh, prices just went through the roof. They, they were at levels that were totally unimaginable, even a few years prior to that. And, and that, and, th- and we did see true demand destruction that was driven by technology, like Xingqian Group out of China, which is now the world's largest stainless steel manufacturer. They basically capped the nickel price by, um, you know, the advent and popularization and then mass buildup of nickel pig iron capacity. And so that crucial ingredient to stainless, um, they had found a technical solution to provide. And, and that cap nickel prices. And, and now of course the nickel market, like, like if you look at the, um, the, um, the projections forward now for the nickel market, they're all centered around, you know, demand for nickel in um, battery applications. And so you would have seen like recent announcements from Tesla about how their partners on an Indonesian project to, you know, secure supply. Musk was famously tweeting about, you know, nickel was the one metal that caused yeah. him concern about like, it's not a lithium ion it. battery it's a nickel battery i think he said yeah like and, and now Xinxian is is looking at um you know solutions to address that part of the market as well with with taking this nickel um you know uh, a pig iron and then converting it to sulfate so reuse in 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 battery applications so you know, so you see those kinds of things happening. You see the same thing with cobalt and some of the other minor, you know, minor metals and, you know, like cobalt-free batteries and so on. But, but you don't have this with copper. You know, they're, 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 copper is fundamental. It's absolutely, you know, foundational to this electrification um, and indispensable. There is no substitute for, for copper, really. I saw a recent um, study into this by uh, 
by Jefferies, a U.S. bank, and they and they put the price of of copper where we would start to see this this demand destruction take place through substitution at ten dollars a pound. So, I mean, that's like essentially saying it's just not going to happen. Period. Yeah. Um, is so there really- a is there a metal that you are particularly bullish on that other people maybe aren't that you you really like and you think is kind of ignored by the wider markets? No, I, I think I think that's kind of my point. Is is when you do feel like um, you, you know you're you're ahead of the curve on on something like that with some minor specialty metal, um, you, you're you're probably going to end up being wrong because the market will find a way to address the, the shortfall either through bringing supply on that you didn't know about or through technological change. And so we've seen that. I mean, we see these manias all the time in in mining you know, minor metal manias. It's like, I remember when I was starting my career, it was in Tantalum and um, um, yeah, I think it was like, it was Tantalum and there was one other metal anyway, that was like, it was basically the cell phone mania. It's like, okay, yeah. cell phones is going to go exponential. This metal is critical to, it's in the, you know, chips that are used in, or the wiring or circuit boards or whatever that are used in cell phones and therefore, um, you know, the, the, the demand is going to be X and the supply is this, and therefore there's this huge gap in the price of going to crazy. And, and ultimately, you know, technology just addresses that because you find ways to substitute out those metals for other metals. So, so, so minor metals are, you can have a lot of fun over a short period of time in minor metals if you can jump on board of uh, one of those trends or bubbles. Yeah. But ultimately, it's a perilous place to be. And I often think about that, you know, they're great to invest in if you catch them at the right time. I would be very cautious about running one of those companies. Uh, You know, we saw this in Cobalt. We saw this in Vanadium where as soon as the company gets up and going, you know, the price gets crushed after that and and people find themselves in a very challenging position. Yeah. And and, and that's, and yeah, I mean, you're you're getting back to something that, um, you know, obviously I spent a lot of time thinking about is, 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 is exit strategy. (laughs) You know, before joining a company, you need to have an exit strategy in mind, unless your ambition is to just continue to earn a paycheck and accumulate, you know, years and years of service at a company, you, you need to have an exit. And in the mining business, that's basically, um, it's about defining the, uh, an economic project and then being able to merge it or sell it on uh, or, or getting into production and, you know, and doing the same. All right. So you've obviously had a lot of job offers over the year. You've had a lot of opportunities to do different things. Why was it that sort of Solaris and the Augusta group stood out? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I guess I can take that in two parts, but yeah, you're, you're in your preamble, uh, that you know you're you're uh that that's exactly correct like i have had opportunities and in fact i've had opportunities where i regret not having taken them because they <laughs> worked out really well um but uh but with solaris I, I i couldn't pass on it because it was just too, it was too good an opportunity it comes back to you know the way that i i view and screen opportunities in the in the mineral space like with the recognition that all the values created in the, in the exploration stage, like the Wilson curve and so on that you're all familiar with. Um, and so where you have an opportunity to uh, get on board of the evolution of a world-class project from the very beginning, 
um, that's something that's that's really successful. And, and Solaris, with its Warinsa project, it kind of had it all, where you had the nucleus of um, uh, a project that was basically economic on day one. Like, and analysts have published on, you know, their their economic models for uh, a project based around the existing resource. The 2019 resource is just based on David Bull's work from 20 years ago. You know, so less than seven kilometers of drilling going into that. And they're, they're coming up with economic projects based just on that. And then obviously um, there was multiple times like true world-class discovery, growth and discovery potential around that. You know, it was evident when you reviewed the project um, uh, as I did that, uh, that the drilling was just scratching the surface. I mean, the holes were bottoming and strong minimization. It was uh, just a small area basically around the discovery outcrop within this vast uh, kind of uh, um, system of outcropping porphyries that had actually been drilled. And so it, it just, yeah, it, 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 it just the kind of opportunity that you, that you see maybe, maybe only once in your career, but certainly not many times. And so I had to jump in it. So, so that's the Solaris part. And then the Augusta group, of course, um, it uh, you know it's just got an unrivaled track record of value creation. It's 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 where you would want to be, or one of the very few groups that you would want to take on a project like that with, um, in in the mining sector. So, uh, and so it just it it just all just came together beautifully for me. So you'd mentioned uh, there, and, and thank you for that. That David Lowell was the discoverer of Warrensa. You know, for people who haven't heard of David. You know, I think it's worth touching on briefly his track record and sort of the credibility of, you know, being a, a David Lowell branded discovery actually holds in the porphyry copper space. Yeah, um, and and I, yeah, I don't know what the marketing impact is to be honest, but but David, what I can say for sure was the world's greatest explorer. So he made more discoveries of greater consequence than anyone in history. And, you know, specifically as it relates to copper, he defined the deposit model, the porphyry copper model, which now accounts for something like two thirds of the world's copper resources. And he basically, at the beginning of his career, took that model and applied it in the most direct way possible um, in the high deserts of Chile and Peru. Um, so this is applying the model of the concentric rings of alteration that define these porphyry systems to outcropping examples in, in the high Indies. And he made a whole string of discoveries um, at the beginning of his career in that way. And, um, and then of course, you know, industry caught on and then you know, started copying his ideas. And, and so there were discoveries that weren't credited to him that were made because of his ideas, of course, mm -hmm. as well, and his approaches. But, but actually the most prolific part of his career, this is, this is where it becomes so amazing. It wasn't just about a brilliant innovation that then spawned a great deal of success. It's about continued innovation uh, uh, and continued dedication across decades of time um, that, you, that you see in, in this man's legendary career. So actually this it was the second stage um, of, of his career where he evolved um, his approach to discovering these porphyry systems to then start looking instead of the, for the direct evidence of the porphyry systems, the porphyry system themselves, 
um, the the indirect evidence of these porphyry systems. And that's actually how he made the discovery at, at Escondida. It was by um, identifying the alteration products uh, or the weathered remains of the alteration products of the porphyry system that was that was Escondida. And that project had passed through the hands of um, five prior uh, companies, senior companies, significant companies with big budgets and specialists in, in exploration yeah. um, before, you know, that discovery was made by David. And then he went on and made a whole string of discoveries, um, you know, after that, right up until the end of his career. And, and, and indeed, I think beyond his career, beyond his life, he's going to be still making discoveries. Yeah. Um, so he actually like set us up with a portfolio of projects that were his targets for future discoveries that are now going to be tested uh, posthumously after his passing. And so that's, that's the legacy that he, uh, well, that's part of the legacy um, that he leaves behind. So just an incredible, it's, it, David's as much an incredible human and it's an, and it's a story of human trying as much as it is one specifically about exploration and geological history. And so that, so he transcends, um, you know, our, our sector. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to overstate uh, what an incredible man he was. And, you know, to, to, just to put that into context for people that listen at home that didn't know David, when you say in the later portion of his life, he was making discoveries. I mean, I met David when he was, I think, about 88 years old. This was in 2015. And we met on a project in Peru. And the day before he'd spent, I think, something like eight to 12 hours on horseback riding around in the deserts, checking out another project in Peru. And so this is a guy that was 88 years old, traveling around the world with his wife, still obsessively looking for discoveries. Yeah. And, and in fact, it, it continued right up until the end of his life. Like I, I literally got uh, a long email from him on targets that we ought to pursue beyond our portfolio. And remember, we already have six projects in our portfolio. So <laughs> we already have uh, essentially like a decade of work in front of us. And David's thinking about what comes beyond that and what we need to pursue to fill in those you know, the period that, that follows follows that uh, right up until the end of his life. So I, I literally got an email from him um, in regards to that subject on, a, I think, the Thursday, and I found out that he had passed away on the Tuesday. Yeah. So, I mean, wow. it, it just never ended for him. Um, it's amazing. I don't know what you say about that. Someone's dedicated, someone, you know,'s dedication to what, you know, their contribution to the world. All right. Well, okay, for those who are listening at home or watching at home, you might notice that uh, I'm in a different location now. Dan's wearing a different shirt. And that's because uh, our internet got cut out mid-sentence uh, yesterday or the other day. And we're just going to pick up the last couple minutes of this conversation now. So uh, sorry for the confusion. Uh, Dan, thanks for taking the time to join us again. And yep. as we got cut off, I was just about to ask you, you know, I don't think anybody has any serious qualms, any serious criticisms of Warinsa and what you guys are doing in Ecuador from a technical perspective. Everyone certainly sees the value there. Um, when I do hear people uh, look at Solaris with some uncertainty or have criticism, it comes down to the social issues and sort of the history 
of dealing with challenges with the local indigenous population, with, um, of course, the government of Ecuador. But you guys have done a lot to address that over the last couple of years. Can you talk a little bit about where you are today uh, with, of course, the relationship with the Shuar and Ecuador in general? Yeah, absolutely. And it was the same for us as well as the Augusta Group approaching this opportunity. You know, that was the, 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 the key risk to focus in on um, and to make sure that you understood um, both the, 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 it's basically understanding the framework. And then once you understand the, the, the framework, then you can, uh, from there, chart a course to uh, mitigating the risk. And then once you've mitigated the risk, then you know strengthening um, the solution that you put in place around it to add resilience um, to the uh, to the to the social license for the project. And 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 and, and what 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 gave us comfort was that the the, the framework, the legal framework um, around this project is is crystal clear. So you've got um, a project that resides on the ancestral lands of uh, the Shuar nations of Lawrence and Yowie. And these two indigenous communities or Shuar nations are, um, th think, think of them as, um, you know, to, to use like the, the Canadian analogy as, as First Nations, right? And then the ancestral lands would be like, uh, you know, their, uh, their First Nations reserve. Okay, so the project resides on their First Nations reserve. And, and, these, and these two Shuar nations have been uh, registered with the Ecuadorian government since 2002, so nearly 20 years. So, and then they have, uh, they have rights um, to self-determination on their ancestral lands that are enshrined in the constitution. So they're not subject to change. Uh, they're basically you know, fixed in place. So these are the parties, these are the only parties that, that have any say um, in the uh, future of the project on their uh, ancestral land. So i.e. I, they're not governed, they're not, they're not subject to influence from any outside indigenous groups, whether they're you know, the, the indigenous federation or Schwar associations or uh, or what have you. So obviously, obviously the, you know, the development of my, mining project is still subject to, you know, the mining law and, and permitting and, and so on, but, but they're not influenced by any outside groups. Therefore, um, you're, you're dealing with um, uh, two communities. So essentially two actors, and therefore you're dealing with a situation um, which, which isn't subject to this incredible like sprawling complexity of of interest that you would have in like the broader kind of indigenous community, you know, in Ecuador, where you've got competing interests depending, you know, uh, you know, in different areas depending on you know their particular circumstances, right? Like right. it's it's one of the things that's challenging about when you're looking at indigenous people as as a whole is that there's incredible diversity, right, across the country, um, and therefore you know in their circumstances and, and therefore you know in their interests. And so trying to address, you know, indigenous issues as a whole on a broad scale is a very difficult thing. But when you're dealing with, in this case, um, a very, uh, like a confined, constrained, uh, very clear situation, it, it's much simpler. So like in total, our two communities have a population of about 500 people. 
And, and those, and, and so those two, two communities, they have leadership councils, which are democratically elected. And then, um, and then those contribute to uh, basically the decision-making for their, for their communities. And those are the parties, those are the parties to the memorandum of understanding, which, which, which actually was the restoration effectively of the social license for this project that allowed the kickstart of exploration activities on the project in 2019. And then also the parties obviously that entered into the impact and benefits agreement that we have for the project that was signed in, in 2020. And that impact and benefits agreement is what provides certain So it sets out all of all of um, all of the uh, all of the benefits that we have to provide uh, to mitigate you know those impacts. So those are things like you know employment. Obviously, is the biggest thing at this stage. Uh, we employ 184 Indigenous people in our project currently. Most of them from uh, these two communities. That's essentially full employment. And then we're going to grow that um, employment footprint out to about 450 people by the middle of the year because we're going from six rates to 12 rates. Um, but then, but then even beyond employment and, you know, and, and, and the related uh, worker training and skills training and so on that goes along that, we've got education programs, we've got actual community infrastructure development, like putting in a road, which we did to connect these communities and our project, of course, uh, to the rest of Ecuador's uh, road network and highway network. Um, you know, community development in the form of putting in community buildings and recreational facilities, um, you know, medical, we've got these, these neat, um, containerized, um, medical, and Dan, I think it's maybe worth mentioning, uh, you know, how isolated some of these communities are right in terms of that you can't, yeah. and I, you know, I've spoken at length with your head of CSR, as I understand it, tell me if I'm wrong, but you either fly in in a, in a helicopter or you're doing a, a two day walk to get out of there. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, um, uh, that, that was the starting point when, when we arrived. And, and so, you know, think through the implications of that. If you don't have any access to the rest of the country, then, you don't have any meaningful access to opportunity in, in the economy. And so essentially what you had in these communities is just subsistence existences of, of hunting and, and so on. So, you know, now uh, we've come in and we've, we've put in the road access to connect them up to the, the highway and the rest of the country. We've put in place, um, you know, uh, basic infrastructure, connectivity, uh, like data connectivity through Wi-Fi, um, we've, you know, people have jobs now, and so they have stable incomes, and so they have access to, you know, services and, and goods and so on. So it's a complete, you, you've basically witnessed in the period of um, uh, a kind of a, a few years here in these communities, like just a sea change in, in terms of um, the, the quality of life for these people. So it's a massive improvement. And it's, you know, and there's, there's more to come into the future. It's just, continues ramping up and and um, um, and will continue to get better for these people as a result. All right. Well, so, you know, we're well over an hour on this podcast now. Um, and, you know, I appreciate you coming back for another, uh, another day to finish this up. The last thing I want to talk about is sort of the Augusta group in general, what you guys are doing, what else people should be paying attention to. 
And I think we should maybe start with the recent sort of acquisition, uh, you know, by Richard Wark personally, of additional shares in Solaris, buying them directly from Equinox Gold, which is, of course, a, a significant shareholder. Can you give people an overview of, of what's actually going on there and, you know, the implications of that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so yeah, so it was it was basically uh, Richard and a strategic investor approached Equinox about purchasing a block of shares off them, so ten million shares off them, uh, together with some warrant warrant rights at eight twenty five uh, per share. So an eighty two and a half million dollar investment, and Richard represented. 7 million of those 10 million shares. Um, so that was a substantial investment. That was a, on its own, uh, a 58, nearly $58 million investment for Richard. And, and, that, and that's basically a doubling up for Richard in terms of his uh, cash investments in Solaris over the last year. So he's, he's now uh, sitting at something about $115 million invested in Solaris over the last 12 months. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a massive investment. And, and, and also just a massive show of, 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 of faith. So Richard isn't, he's not a charity. So this is all, this is, you know, profit oriented in investment. And so it gives you an idea of the, the type of return that Richard thinks is possible with Solaris. You know, we've talked a lot um, previously about the copper space and your views on it, but where do you really see um, Warinsa sitting here? I mean, we're, we're both on the same page that we're entering a significant copper cycle, that there's going to be a major supply crunch. How do you think Warinsa will weigh into that? I mean, do you, you know, 10 years down the road from now, what do you think people in this sector look at Warinsa as? Yeah, um, there's there's really there there's two parts to the answer. So the first part is is just um, the view on the copper cycle itself, and then the second part is is really the industry dynamics and how Solaris plays those industry dynamics. On the copper cycle, I think it the best way to um, describe it is that we've we've just seen the first leg of what will be a structural bull market for copper over the course of this decade. And I think it'll take us to um, prices that were previously unimaginable for copper. Okay, and this is based on the supply deficits that are forecast across the industry. Pick whoever you want, CRU, Wood Mackenzie, uh, you know, Glencore, Trafigura, BHP, Rio Tinto. Everyone's looking at the same picture of massive supply deficits that are gonna to begin to open up between supply and demand in the next two to three years. Um, and so prices are headed a lot higher. Uh, that's, um, I think, basically the consensus view on uh, copper. I actually, um, I, I actually think that it's, it's you, you have to go beyond thinking purely about price and you have to think about the strategic importance of copper to um, you know, um, basically the, the, this, this kind of, um, this paradigm shift, this, this revolution, the green revolution, the electrification megatrend, which is of strategic, great strategic importance to the great powers of the world, you know, China and the United States. 
So I think that you're going to see that um, instead of copper assets just being considered alongside uh, the rest of the basket of commodities, you know, essentially being considered as vanilla, you know, mining assets, garnering, you know, vanilla mining multiples, i.e. low multiples, you're going to see a shift where people come to understand the strategic importance of copper, it being totally indispensable and, and foundational and critical to this, you know, these revolutions that we have going. Um, and does it fill a place more like oil in that scenario, do you think? Well, maybe oil at the peak, you know, when, when we thought we were at peak oil and that oil was essential to, you know, underpin economic growth. And so then it took on kind of a strategic importance and that kicked off a whole bunch of, you know, concerns in Canada. Like you remember the discussion in Canada about we're giving away our oil and, you know, and the Chinese and the Americans and so on are coming in buying up the oil. And this is a great crisis. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I think you're going to see the same thing. I mean, you can already see it in the metal space in, you know, in, in metals like lithium and, and, uh, and the, the rare earth elements where you can see in the United States changing legislation, you know, aimed at securing supplies and in China, you know, obviously China is out in front in terms of um, positioning itself for this coming competition. But I think the same thing, and in terms of the equities, you can see them trading at, you know, multiples that reflect that scarcity and, you know, kind of the premium value on, on, on these assets. I think that's coming to copper. I think that that's where the discussion is headed next around, um, you know, the strategic importance of this metal to these ongoing revolutions. And so I think that we're going to have uh, these same premium multiples arriving in the copper space. Okay, so so that was a long-winded answer, but I think basically all of those things together together give you the my view on on kind of the copper dynamics now and, and into the future across the cycle. Um, the industry dynamics are are just as important for a company like like Solaris. The basic setup in terms of the industry dynamics is that um, you know in prior copper cycles the supply demand deficit was ultimately filled in by uh, the expansion, sometimes multiple expansions of the mega mines of the industry. So if you look at the copper industry, it's dominated by, you know, say the top 10 uh, copper mines, you know, producing about 25% of the world's supply. Um, and so the prior uh, copper price cycles uh, were, were ultimately capped by those expansions and they're, you know, filling in the supply demand deficit. But I think that those 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 mines, you know, they're they've been expanded up against the the limits of their capacity. You know, their their geometrical, you know, kind of like physical constraints, the availability of water yeah. and power. And so, I think in the future, in this cycle, there's an increasing recognition, and and the big companies are talking about this. BHP, um, Rio Tinto, and so on are all acknowledging this. In in, in to an increasing degree, in in this cycle, we're going to see. A contribution from greenfield projects and so um like if you look in the most recent wood mckenzie numbers they're they're actually putting the number of copper mines coming offline across this cycle at something like 200 mines so that gives you an idea of the number of new greenfield projects that have to come in just to fill the gap never mind to contribute to you know this incredible ramp up in growth that we need and so it's really 
um, it's really the industry dynamics, this, this incredible need for new sources, greenfield projects um, um, to contribute to supply that, that, that's going to place a premium on assets like Lorenza within Solaris in this cycle. Okay. <clears throat> and where do you think Warinsa stacks up against its competition? What you see out there, what these, I mean, obviously not quite greenfield, but development stage assets that can fill this gap. How does Warinsa play into that? Look, look, the, Is it in the, the, the top very, 5%, the top 20%? Well, it, it's, it's tough to say for Warinsa as a whole, because we've really only drilled uh, the central porphyry within this cluster of porphyries. And there's exploration to do beyond that. But if you just look at Warinsa Central, let's say, okay, we made a discovery at West. We're gonna be drilling East and South in the second quarter for discoveries. And then we've got targets in the second half of the year. But if you just look at Central alone um, and compare the potential there against the very best copper development projects in existence currently. And so at the top of the list, I'd have a project like Anglo-Americans Echo project in Peru. But, you know, for Canadian resource investors, they'd be more familiar with Tech's QB2 project in Chile. Colobeco is in Peru. Um, that has a reserved inventory, Colobeco, of 1.3 billion tons at 0.57% copper equivalent. Okay. Um, you know, the block that we're drilling, QB2 would be about 1.4 billion tons at 0.48. And these are both mega projects. These are, you know, uh, nearly $6 billion CapEx project. Something like QB2, you know, you're, you're spending over a billion dollars just on the water supply, the desalination plant, pumping stations, pipelines up from the coast to get to a project that's at 4,400 meters of elevation with very little infrastructure. Around it. Um, so these are, you know, these are mega projects, whereas a project like Warinsa is situated at 1,500 to 2,000 meters of elevation, um, you know, with abundant fresh water on site, the highway we've already connected to, it's just 22 kilometer connection to the highway. The power grid has excess hydroelectric power, cheap and clean power available on it. There's, there's in fact a, a nearly $4 billion hydroelectric development called the Santiago G8 project. This is a fully licensed permit. It's just about to go out for, for tender. Uh, it'll be in operation uh, by 2025. This is actually adjoining our project on its northern boundary. So this is an area very rich in natural infrastructure. That infrastructure saves, you know, $2 billion off the front end of your uh, uh, construction costs for the project, uh, just naturally. But if you look at the uh, resource opportunity of Warrenson Central, we're drilling off about a 1.4 billion ton mass of rock uh, in our in our drill program, which will be completed in, in Q2 with the resource to follow in three or four months after that. Um, and then the resource, the resource will just be whatever subset of that is mineralized above our cutoff grade and if it's in, in a pit shell. Um, and so call that, you know, I mean, you can come up with your own estimate. Analyst, um, analyst estimates range from anywhere from 600 to 800 million tons. Let's say you're targeting a billion tons there. With the types of, of grades that we have, you're, you're basically in amongst that Quelaveco and QB2 uh, territory, maybe a bit short on tonnage, but you're more than making up for it on grade and infrastructure that you have at Ridza. So that's the very best, very best copper development projects in the world that you're aiming to get amongst with 
words essential before you get into west and east and so and so on so so that's how it that's how it stacks up nothing you know in terms of potential you know has certainly has the potential to be the very best copper project uh, at the beginning of this copper cycle all right uh that was a very clear and well thought out answer thank you dan uh i think we've pretty much done it hit all the things i wanted to hit um, thank you very much for taking the time. If people want to learn more about Warinsa, about the Augusta Group in general, about you, where do they check it out? SolarisResources.com is the best place for information on Solaris and Warinsa. We've got a 3D model of all of our drilling, the historical drilling, the geophysics, the geochemistry, topography, and all the rest of it that people can play with uh, on our website, as well as very detailed information on ESG and our responsible mining practices and our innovative CSR program and so on. And then for the Augusta group as a whole, augustacorp.ca is, okay. is the best place to go for information on, on the rest. And of you are pretty uh, active in the mining Twitter world. How can people find you on Twitter? Yeah. Uh, Daniel Earl three, I believe is my, is my Twitter handle on. Uh, so you can, you can certainly reach me there or search for me under my name. All right. Well, thank you very much. And ladies and gents, that is Dan Earl, CEO of Solaris Resources. Thanks again, Dan. Thanks so much, Jamie. Did you enjoy today's podcast? Me too. If you want more like it, head over to resource-insider.com, my website where you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter where you're going to get instant access to all of our new podcasts and videos. We're going to keep you up to date on what's going on in the mining industry. And most importantly, we're going to show you where we're investing our own money and what I think are the hottest deals and opportunities in the sector. Thanks for listening.